Welcome to the June 27th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, and the sermon is entitled, The Centerpiece of the Bible, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, and we're going to one of those primary chapters, primary verses in all of the Bible. Go to John chapter 14 with me today. As we go to this great gospel written by the old disciple John, uh, these are words of a man who walked with Jesus through three years of ministry, and he loved the Lord like no other. Fifty years before, back when John was a young man, he saw the miracles of Jesus as he walked with him in ministry. He heard the words of Jesus' sermon. He saw the touch of Jesus upon multitudes of people. John himself saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. John himself laid his head on Jesus' chest in that Passover meal that we have just studied. John stood at the foot of Jesus' cross. John himself inspected the empty tomb of Jesus the Christ. No man had a closer physical or spiritual walk with Jesus, the very Lamb of God walking the soil of the earth, than the old disciple John. Not only are these John's words, but these words were selected and directed and polished in his mind by the very Spirit of God Almighty. This is God's inerrant, perfect word. Amen? Praise God, we get to study it today as the people of God. We get to carry this word out in our heart this week as we go out as representatives and witnesses of that Savior. As we open this monumental chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, these words are overwhelming to me. This Bible has been used in the pulpit for every sermon, and this Bible has been used for every funeral since the year 2000. And I want to tell you that this page of John 14 is the dirtiest, most worn out, most torn and taped page in my entire Bible. In 21 years of usage, this is the page that has gotten the most usage in my ministry at Clifford Baptist Church in these years. So as we come to this passage, it is a beautiful passage. Uh, This page of John 14 is so beautiful in our hearts. My prayer is that it's beautiful not just in your Bible, but also in your mind as you serve the Savior. And as we open John 14 today, let me back up. And set the stage just a little bit so all of us are on the same page as we get started here. John 13. Jesus shares the Passover meal with his disciples. From that meal, he draws the Lord's Supper. But also, he washes his disciples' feet in a moment that humbles them to the core. In fact, most of them were struck speechless by this act of God on his knees washing their feet. But Simon Peter speaks up. And he says, Lord, you just can't wash my feet. Wash all of me. Start with my head and move downward. He's the one who spoke up. But all of them basically were silent except for Peter because of this amazing move. And then Jesus gives them the shocking news that there's a traitor among the very disciple group. None of the disciples knew who that traitor was, but Jesus dismissed him into the night. Judas Iscariot going into the night, not just darkness outside, but with darkness inside, with Satan himself inhabiting his very body, it tells us in Scripture. And he goes out with the job of betraying the Savior to the Roman authorities. 
And so with 11 men at the table now, Jesus says to them, little children, the greatest term of endearment that you can say to any human being, a term of love, a term of sacrifice, I would give my life for you, he says, little children, yet a little while, and I am with you, but shortly I'm going away, and where I am going, you cannot come right now. There will come a time where you will join me, but right now when I go there, you cannot join me. So in this evening together, the disciples had no idea. The disciples had no inkling of what was going to happen within the next 12 hours. They knew nothing about the cross. They knew nothing about Jesus' arrest. But they'd been through this unbelievable foot washing. They had been through the news that there was a traitor even amongst the 12 who had served with Jesus for three years. And now Jesus is saying, I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. It won't be long before I'm gone. And where I'm going, you presently cannot come. Now, even though they did not know that they were going to witness Jesus, their Savior, on a cross within the next 12 hours, there was still this growing fear, this growing anxiety, this growing tension in this group that something great, monumental, scary, tense is going to happen soon. Jesus is setting the stage that something is going to happen soon that's going to change our lives. As he washes their feet in preparation for ministry, saying, the humility that I'm practicing to you, now you take to others. You share the good news. You wash someone else's feet. The traitor is dismissed. He says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. They don't understand all of this. They only know something monumental is going to happen very soon. And so tension is growing in the group. The disciples didn't know the anxiety and the human terror that would weigh down the Son of Man, Jesus, their Master. They had no idea what was weighing on His shoulders. They did not know what Jesus knew about the coming cross. They only knew that something was going to happen very soon. Had they known it, I am sure the disciples would have risen up and gathered around Jesus and supported him and prayed for him and encouraged him and lifted him up for strength in the moment. They had no idea that they needed to surround him with that kind of support because they had no idea that the cross was on its way in just a very short few hours. They didn't know the agony. They didn't know the distress. They didn't know the loneliness that would rest upon their master when God the Father would literally turn His back on His Son as He bore the weight of sin on His own body. They had no idea. Only Jesus knew what was coming. Surely they would have surrounded Him with love and support. But instead... Jesus, knowing what was going to happen in the next 12 hours and how the world of his disciples was going to be shattered, he anticipates the pain, not that he's going to go through, but Jesus anticipates the pain that his disciples are going to go through. And so Jesus, who is facing the cross, ministers to the men who will watch the cross. Jesus gives hope and peace and blessing for what the men are going to face rather than what he is going to face. So just hours before the cross, Jesus gives peace and calmness to his disciples 
in John 14, verses 1 through 7. Open your Bible there. These are amazing words of God. Never lose this page. May this page in your Bible be the dirtiest, most torn and worn out page you have. Hear these words. John 14. Jesus says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. May God add his blessing to these seven verses of Scripture as they take place in our heart and our mind because all of the Bible marches around this passage of Scripture. All of the Bible teaches us this passage of Scripture. As Jesus prepares his disciples for the next unknown 24 hours of their life, he says, let not your heart be troubled. I point this out many times when I use this scripture. Notice it's in the singular, let not your heart be troubled. I went back to the original Greek text. This is originally how it's written in the Greek. Let not be troubled of you the heart. It's as if Jesus is looking every one of those 11 disciples in the face and individually he is telling them, let not your heart be troubled. Peter, let not your heart be troubled. James, let not your heart be troubled. John, let not your heart be troubled. Thaddeus, let not your heart be troubled. On around to the 11, he's speaking individually to, him, to them. The emphasis here is that Jesus is speaking to individuals that each one of you men are going to experience a horrible, awful night tonight and a horrible day tomorrow. But your heart does not need to be troubled. Now, troubled in the Greek, the word is terasso. And it means to be so overcome and so destroyed by fear and anxiety, you can't think of anything else. When you're troubled... And the trouble is right before you. There's nothing else you can think of. You're so eaten up by it that it takes over your heart and your mind and there's no other thought that can enter in. Jesus said, let not your hearts be that troubled. He's telling these men who love him, believe me, God the Father has a plan. God the Father will never lose the reins of control in what you're going to see in the next 12 hours. Believe that the Father is using me to carry out a plan that he has established from the beginning of the world. Whatever you see, men, in the coming hours, don't ever believe that God has lost the reins. Don't you ever believe that God has lost control in what you're going to see. 
His plan is to provide forgiveness and a heavenly home for every single believer. That's his plan. And what you will see in the next 12 hours is the way he will carry out that plan, a plan of sacrifice. Look at verse 2, 14-2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, I love the King James Version when it says, in the Father's house are many mansions. Other translations say, in my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. None of those words are wrong. Originally in the Greek, the Greek that's translated as mansions or rooms or dwelling places, the word is mone, M-O-N-E, with an, an accent on the E, mone. And it means a place that we live, a manse, a home. And really, it's not specified here how fancy or simple that home is. Here's the emphasis of the word mansion or room or dwelling place. It is not temporary. It is a forever home. It is a home that once we move to, we will never move again. It's a home that will never fade away. It's a home that will never get old. It's a home that we'll never get tired of. It's the home of God the Father, and we will have the privilege of living there. That's what Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples, a permanent dwelling, a permanent address. And really, the Bible doesn't tell us how fancy it's going to be. You know, if you read in Revelation and its description of heaven, it's a brief description, but it's magnificent. I think that Revelation in the Bible as a whole uses very little words about how wonderful heaven is going to be because it cannot be described in human language. It's going to be so wonderful, so beautiful, so awesome. But personally, I do believe that our home in heaven is going to be more beautiful than anything you or I have ever, ever seen. It's going to be that magnificent, but really it doesn't matter. Will it have gold fixtures? I don't know. In fact, gold is asphalt in heaven. You'll get it. Street of gold. So I don't know that the fixtures are going to be coated with gold, but the reality is if I am permitted to live in the house of God for all eternity, if he issues me a pup tent, I'm going to be happy with it. Amen, praise God, because it's a permanent home, and it's in the Father's house. And I know this, it's going to be a beautiful place to live, how simple or how magnificent it might be, because the front window is going to face the throne of God, so that every time that we look to that throne of God, we will be reminded of why we're living there, because Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross through the tomb that we might have a home in heaven through His grace and His forgiveness and His love. Praise God, we will have a home in heaven. Now, I think it's so fitting that Jesus learned the trade of carpentry under his earthly father, Joseph, when he was a young man. Because he says in this, in this uh, chapter, in these verses, I personally will make you a home in heaven. I personally will prepare your place that you will live in heaven. I will prepare it until the day you come home. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know right now, your home in heaven and mine is under construction. And when the last board is nailed up, and when the last coat of the paint is dry, 
the Lord will come, and according to his word, he will take us home to live there forever. That's his word, that's his promise, and we believe that. According to John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says, I go to prepare that place, and when it's all finished and all done, I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's a forever eternal promise. I love Jesus' honesty here. He says, if that were not so, I would have told you. I'm not lying to you. I'm not embellishing this. I'm not coloring it a different color. I'm telling you the truth. When I come to get you, I'm going to take you home to a place that I have prepared for you. Now remember, this is the night before the cross. And Jesus tells his disciples, you all will see some horrible things in the coming hours, but all of it will happen in the coming time in preparation to get you home. Whatever you see is God's plan to get you home, to have a home for you in heaven. What we read in the Gospels is preparation to get us home. And that home is a true, literal place. You know, so, so many places in our world, music and otherwise, portray us as floating around and sitting on some kind of cloud, playing a rusty harp, not having anything to do all day long. That is not the description of the Bible about our home. Our home is a literal place. Our home is a dwelling place. It is a place that God is going to prepare for us. First Peter describes it as a country. Hebrews describes it as a city. John calls it our home. But here's the truth about our home in heaven. Revelation chapter 22 verse 3 tells us that when we get to heaven, that God's servants will serve him. And so that means that we don't just float around and sit around on clouds all day long. We don't turn into an angel. Don't think about, I'm going to get my angel wings. That's bunk. That's not true. God made angels. God made us and their differences. You're not going to float around in heaven in some nether region and do nothing. The Bible tells us God's servants will serve him. We are his servants today, and we will be his servants forever. So now is a good time to be involved, believers. Now is the time to invest your talent and give your energy and take on ministry because we are preparing for the home that's to come. And our service here will only be a continuation there. So be busy. We still have places in this church that need filling right now. Be busy. Volunteer. Link your talent where the need is. We need you. Start the service now because the servants will serve him then. How important that is. Jesus says, trust me. Trust the Father. Because even as you see the cross, men, remember one day where I am, there you may be also. We'll be home together. That's the promise of John 14. Look at verses 4 and 5. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? So Jesus says, you disciples will know where I am. And also, you'll know how to get there. You will know how to come to me when the time is right for you to come. And disciple Thomas speaks up. 
You know, Peter is famous for this. I believe that Peter speaks up and he voices what all the disciples are thinking in their own mind. Peter is the bold one who will speak up and voice the question. I ask the question, but all the disciples are really wondering the same thing. I think Thomas takes that place right here. I think Thomas voices the question that all the other ten disciples are thinking right now. Okay, you're going away. Where are you going and how am I going to get there? Thomas is voicing what the group is thinking. He just said, I don't know where you're going, Lord. And I'm not sure I understand the way to get there. Well, of course, you know, we often call Thomas the doubter. This is not a question of doubt. This is a sincere, honest, forthright statement. Lord, right now, we don't have it all figured out. We don't know what's coming, and we don't know where you're going, and I'm not sure we know how to get there. Well, you notice that Jesus doesn't chastise him for that. He just patiently moves on and tells him, Thomas, I want to sum up everything the Bible says. And he talks to Thomas and the disciples about salvation and forgiveness and heaven. One of the most important verses in all of the Bible is John 14, 6. If you ever underline in your Bible, this is it. Don't lose this passage. If you ever have an inclination to memorize Scripture, don't leave this out. All of the Bible marches around John 14, 6. The rest of your Bible is worthless to you if you don't stake your life on John 14, 6. You can't doubt John 14, 6 and believe one other word of the Bible. When Jesus says to Thomas and to those men gathered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Praise God for John 14, 6. Amen. We stake our life, we stake our church, we stake our outreach, we stake sending missionaries to the world out because of John 14, 6. The world needs to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, I am the way. The Greek word for way is hodos, hodos. Jesus Christ is the natural pathway. He is the one doorway. He is the one highway. There's only one. Jesus is the only way to know God the Father. Jesus is the truth. The Greek word is aletheia, the absolute reality of the matter, truth undiluted, truth itself, truth that is raw, truth that is the basis of life. Jesus cannot lie. Jesus is the truth. And then I want you to hear Jesus is the life. The Greek word for life that Jesus uses here is zoe, Z-O-E, zoe. And zoe is the highest life. It is absolute life. Now listen, in Greek, our few years on earth are bios or bios, bios or bios. Our few, you hear biology in that, the biological realm, bios. So our few years of life, the Bible says here on earth, will be lived out. Some of us live no more than 20 years. Some go 50, some go 80, some go past 100. We have a limited time that we're going to live bios on this earth. 
But the question is, what happens to Zoe? What happens the moment our earthly years stop? Jesus says, if you know me as the way and the truth and the life, your life will continue on for all eternity because you're going to live with me in the Father's house. But it's only through me you will not find any other way to get there than through me. I am the way. So today, this sermon is centered around seven little verses. I know it takes a long time to get through the Gospel of John, but I couldn't move any farther than these seven verses today. But this is the heart of the Bible. I cannot stress to you how important this passage is is as it sums up the entire purpose and the entire focus of the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation. It's about getting us home. That's what the Bible is about, getting God's children home. And it's only through Jesus as Lord and Savior. This past week, I saw an article about Bill Gates. Of course, his wife's name is Melinda. He and Melinda have more than $130 billion. They have seven homes. The most beautiful home of those seven is worth $130 million. They own 242,000 acres of land. They have seven private planes. They have everything that money can buy. Money is not an object for anything that they would have a whim to buy. But after 27 years, they are now divorcing, bringing about one of the greatest property divisions of all human history in a couple. Now, I don't have any personal knowledge of Bill Gates' relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I read a quote from him that gives me a lot of evidence of what he believes. So I want you to hear this quote from Bill Gates, the richest, one of the richest men in the world. Here's what he says. We've raised our kids in a religious way. They have gone to the Catholic church that Melinda attends and I participate in. I've been very lucky, and I owe it to try and reduce the inequity in the world. And that's a kind of religious belief. I mean, it's at least a moral belief. It makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what decisions you make differently in life because of it I don't know. Those words speak and scream to me a lost man. Not knowing Jesus Christ. Not knowing the reason for living and the reason of life. He's losing some of his earthly property now to divorce. But one of these days when those bios years are over, he's going to leave it all behind. Every single red penny of it he will leave behind. And when those years of eternity begin, the question will remain, and it will remain for every single individual on earth, whether you were rich or poor, did you know Jesus Christ? Did you come to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life in those few years on earth? Did you proclaim him as your Savior? Because that, that in turn will affect what the rest of eternity will be for you. Did you come to Jesus? Did you accept him as your savior? Did you live for him? Did you worship him? Did you give him all that you had? Did you give him your talents? Did you give him your life? Did you serve him in ministry? Did you give him your life? The great evangelist Billy Sunday said this, the man who has no money is poor. The man who has nothing but money 
is poorer still. A life without Jesus is in the worst poverty because it faces an eternity in hell. And that's what the Bible says. There's no coating it, no making it candy cane sugar coated. It can't happen. A lost person will face hell for all eternity. So listen, no matter how much or how little you have, your future eternity, whether it's in the light of the Father's house or in the darkness of hell, depends solely on your decision and your relationship in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He is the way and the truth and the life. Have you accepted him as Savior? Most of us in this sanctuary today can say yes. But let me ask you, are you serving him as Savior? Does your life belong to him? This is not a question of do you know Jesus and then go on about living your life in the way that you want to live, the way I choose to live, I do what I want to do. Or do you live your life as Jesus being your Savior in total submission and surrender to His will in your life? If His will is taking place in your life, you will be a minister. You will be a servant. You will be a representative. And you will be a witness. Because you belong to Him. And every day that we have is a day to be used for Him. Not to be wasted. I pray... Believers, here online, I pray that we'll rededicate our life to total surrender to the one we know as Savior. Not only is he my Savior, he's also my Master. He's also my Lord. And I give all to him. And today, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, your eternity can be put in place in two words today. I believe. I believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. I believe that he went to a cross for me. I believe that he rose from the grave to give me eternal life. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself for me. And I believe, Lord, that you want me home with you one day. And the only way, I know the only way to get there is through you. To come to the Father's house is to come by you as my Savior. I give you my life. Today, if you've never done that, make it public. Twelve children made it public this past Wednesday night. Maybe today is your day. Maybe if you're watching online, though you're not here personally, you, where you are and what you're doing and in your location, you can say, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart. I want you to be my Savior. You come today. He's waiting for you. Every one of us needs to make that decision. I pray before we leave this place, every one of us is bound for the Father's house. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, thank you for these precious moments, Lord. I thank you, Father, that it, should I pass, should I die before I even walk behind this pulpit out to the front, I know where I'm going to be. I know, Father, I'm going to be home. When it's time for you to call my name, I know my, my room, my dwelling place, my mansion will be ready. Father, I thank you that that is your promise to every child of God. I pray, Father, that we share that promise, that we know that promise, that we have surrendered to the Savior, and that our life belongs to you now, Lord, so that when we get to heaven, we just continue in service. The servants will serve him. I pray that your servants today will serve you. 
Father, for that one who needs Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that he or she will come this very day, this very moment, and receive you, Lord. And eternity will be in place with a true and faithful decision for Jesus Christ. Church home, whatever the need, Lord, thank you that you're a healing God and you will meet us where we need you. Bless us in this moment of decision, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.